With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Um, bear with us, listeners. This is uh, our first Hawkeye History podcast. I am your host, Rob Howe of Hawkeye Nation. And our first guest for the Hawkeye History podcast is former Hawkeye defensive lineman Anthony Heron. Uh, please bear with us, listeners. This is the first go of this. <laughs> our best to make this an entertaining podcast. Um, took us a little bit to get on Skype, which uh, yeah, right. <laughs> accomplished something today. I appreciate Anthony bearing with me and figuring it out with me. And uh, let's welcome him on. Um, thanks for joining us today, Anthony. Yeah, really happy to, to be here, Rob. I appreciate it. It's a, I'm a Actually, one of my nicknames when I was playing with the Hawks back in the 90s was Grandpa. Grandpa Heron was any, you know, my teammates <laughs> on one end, they would mispronounce my last name, put a little additional twang on it with Heron, but they'd always call me Grandpa Heron because uh, it was probably twofold. On, on one hand, it was them, you know, making fun of the fact that I always had bad knees and a bad back, so I had the, the joints of someone four times my age. But then, <laughs> in addition to that, I was a bit of a technical technological dinosaur so all, when all the guys were like playing video games like back then it was uh 007 was a big video game and mario kart <laughs> and before uh before they stopped making the ea sports games you know we play with ourselves on the games every once in a while using the hawkeyes and uh so i would participate in that some but probably not as not nearly as much as a man of my age should have been doing <laughs> at that point I, I just wasn't as into it as some others and for our younger audience, you can Google all those references that Anthony made because right. we're old. So anything <laughs> you don't know, you can Google. That's the that's the day and age that we're in. Um, Anthony is somebody like myself who's been in the media for a while. And uh, let's start, Anthony, with what you're up to this day, these this day. You know, these days, excuse me, and then we'll kind of circle back around with how you got here. So. I currently, I, I do a, a few different roles in the media. Um, like last fall was, was one of the, the busier football seasons that I'd had in the media. So during the football season, uh, the majority of what I do, um, well, like I'll start with year round. I do a morning show for Sirius XM on their Big Ten channel. We're still within the first year of our launch. We actually launched during the football season last year. In October on Sirius XM Channel 372, it's myself and my co-host Jason Goff. So we have a big fun talking Big Ten sports. So we do that all year. So that's in the mornings from 6 to 9 a.m. Central Time. Um, during the football season, I do a lot of Pac-12 coverage. So I spend every weekend flying out west, calling Pac-12 football games and doing studio shows for them. So I've been doing that for a number of years with the Pac-12 Network. And uh, in addition to that, here in Chicago, I do Chicago Bears coverage on their uh, the official home of the the official Chicago Chicago Bears post game show on Fox 32. So when I get back from flying cross country out to go cover a game, and I'm there for a couple of days doing that, and I get off the air Saturday night, or a lot of times, you know, by the time I'm off the air West Coast time, it's Sunday morning by Central <laughs> East Coast time, and then I'll take a red eye 
fly back home and get back to Chicago in time to go in the studio, watch the Bears game, and do a number of my Bears post game duties. And then I also do a lot of uh, a lot of guest hosting with 670 The Score here in Chicago, which is the number one sports talk station in town. So I have a few different bosses, a few different vendors. I still do a few events for NBC every year, the Bayou Classic every Thanksgiving weekend, and the uh, the All American Bowl broadcast that we do out of San Antonio every January. So it's a you know you know how the industry works, Rob, where. There's some people who are who have an exclusive contract and agreement with one network where you do kind of one role for them all throughout the year. But a lot of folks in the industry, especially, uh, you know, when you, you like to live a certain lifestyle, make a certain <laughs> level of income in doing it, you know, have a few different bosses. And that's what I get to get to enjoy doing. So I get to get to talk sports and cover football and other sports all throughout the year. But my busiest time is certainly during the football season. I know for me, I, I do radio, I do TV, but mostly write. Um, but I kind of like, and I take photos. I kind of like that having my hands in some different areas. Is that like that for you? Do you like doing different things like college, pro, radio, TV, different things like that? I always have. Uh, even when I go and I'll speak, whether it's speaking at an elementary school, speaking at a, a prison, speaking to business people at different junkets that I may be invited to. When I talk, I, I always try to encourage people young and old to be as versatile, as diversified as they possibly can. Because for me, it's, it's worked well for me in my time as an athlete, whether amateur or professional or coaching. And it's worked for me you know, in the, the times since my, my athletic career was over just in covering sports, because to me, when you, when you have the opportunity, whether it's presented or whether it's something you pursue to take advantage of just life experience and new experiences in general, I, I think it's something that everyone has a chance to grow from. And if there's any time that you're able to have a, a growth opportunity, I just feel like it's, it, it's worth taking advantage of. It's worth pursuing. It's worth trying to make yourself a more well-rounded person. And there may be things that you attempt, that you try, that you don't enjoy. There may be things that you attempt that you have no idea you were going to enjoy. Like I, I spent over five years as a senior executive with the Arena Football League in the midst of a lot of other things that I was doing in the initial time after my playing career was over. But the opportunity was presented to me. I'd already been in the media industry for a while and tried a few different things in front of the camera, behind the camera, and, you know, gotten to make some relationships there. And, um, you know, after my career at Iowa and then in the NFL, I played arena football and I coached arena football. And then I, I had some relationships I developed with the, the commissioner of the league and some of the owners around the league. And they, they offered me an opportunity to come in and do that. So I sat behind a desk for five years, in addition to flying here and there and doing different things <laughs> I was still doing in the media industry. But for me, I've, I've rarely, I've rarely found it beneficial just to flat turn down the chance to do something new because I feel like I always learn from it. And I've, and I even say this about my time at Iowa, which I'm sure we'll, we'll get into, is, you know, my the transition from Hayden Fry to Kirk Ferentz. I had two years with Hayden after playing as a true freshman, two years with Kirk, and finishing out my career with his first two years. We didn't win nearly as many games as I planned on winning when I was in <laughs> Iowa City. I feel like I learned more from things that I didn't enjoy. I learned more from seasons that my team I was with didn't do well, games that I lost. I took more lessons of more value 
from those experiences, and I feel like I did from going to the, the NFC Championship game with the Atlanta Falcons or from making the playoffs with the Green Bay Packers or from you know, winning a bowl game, or actually we didn't, we lost a bowl game, making a bowl game our freshman year at Iowa. And, you know, some seasons have gone well, some didn't. You know, winning a championship as a coach, all, all those things are fun, and you learn things from, from pretty much any situation in life. But honestly, the difficulties, the losses, I really feel like I've gotten more from those than I have from times where something came more easily to me. Now, hold up. I'm going to go back to where you started on that. And you said you speak at prisons. Oh, I certainly have. Yeah. Yeah. I, I like What's that like? I mean, that's got to be eye opening. It is. It is. Uh, I've uh, I've done it a number of times over the years. Actually, the, the initial times I used to do it uh, was when I was in Iowa City. And we used to go uh, what I was I would work with a, a Christian athletes organization called Athletes in Action. It's, it's sure. still there. It's a big part of the campus there and, mm-hmm. and surrounding campuses around the country. And with AIA, we would go and, and speak at prisons at times, you know, drive out and, and spend some time with, with prisoners there back then. So that was my first exposure to it. And over the years, I've, I've tried to, you know, I wouldn't say necessarily make a habit of it, but a, a number of times. Uh, over the years, whether it's been back in Iowa, whether it's been here in the Chicago area, even out west a couple of times when I've been out west calling Pac-12 football games in recent years, like Maricopa County, which is one of the more renowned and and in some ways infamous prison systems out in the state of Arizona, just outside of Phoenix, uh, Maricopa County has one of the the more dodgy prisons out there. And I've gone and spoken to to, to prisoners there. And it's, it's a very it's a very sobering experience when you do that because you, you know, you're surrounded by these enclosed walls and all the, the concrete and the iron of a, a prison situation. But you, you also have the human aspect of what's being dealt with there. And that's one thing that whether it's for me, that's always a welcome reminder of the humanity of everyone around me, or whether it's me being able to expose folks who are living in what in a lot of ways are inhumane conditions and and that can you know and i've got a number of people in and out of my life who've been in prison at different points and just being around folks who've been through that even former friends and teammates who've been through that procedure where it can it can sap the humanity from you and so for me to try and expose myself to that expose myself to them my my humanity to them and looking them in their eyes and, and making sure they recognize the value that i see in them as people, as human beings. I, I just feel like it's something that, that I, I get something out of and I hope that I'm imparting something that, that they get out of as well when I interact with them. That's cool, man. I'm sure they do. That's that's a lot of people kind of cast those people aside and, and kind of push them out of society. And that's that's unfortunate. Yeah, yeah, that is certainly how, how things go at times with folks who end up going through you know, the prison system for a, a variety of reasons, but, sure. you know, hopefully if there's a, a, a small role I can play in, in whatever, you know, reformation an individual might have, or even if, if there's, you know, I've talked to people on, who are in the midst of life sentences or on death row, and there, there may be things that are perhaps beyond reform with the ability mm-hmm. to reenter society, but to, to find the humanity in that to me, it is still something that, that's worth the effort, you know, when you have the time or energy or wherewithal to do it. Cool. Yeah, cool. Um, okay, let's shift back now to um, high school, 
football. I know we got to go way back as we started this conversation. <laughs> We're old. So right. do the best to remember it as you can. So you're you're in high school football. When did you realize that you could play at the next level? So initially, my dreams of playing at the next level uh, revolved more around basketball than mm-hmm. football. You know, in the growing up in the Chicago area, we were big football and basketball fans in our house. But I was more of a basketball fan, especially you know the Bulls of the '90s and right. championships every year in the early '90s. And you know, we we're from uh, like the the Inglewood neighborhood in Chicago, where as, as a kid, when I was still pretty young, I wasn't able to like just go out, run the streets and play and do a lot of things that, that the suburban lifestyle that I ended up getting to, uh, to partake of once I got a little, little bit older and we moved out to Bolingbrook and then it was a very different existence I had there where it's like, Oh, okay. I can just go around the corner to the playground. And my parents <laughs> don't have to worry about me and some of those things. But so, so you me, went, so you went from inner city Chicago when you were younger to the suburbs? Correct. Yes. Okay, I got you. And so for me, in getting to participate in team sports for the first time, my very first exposure to team sports that I got to play was soccer because I was too big for the youth football league <laughs> in suburban Chicago, which you call sure. Trojans in the south suburbs. I was too heavy for the weight limit for my age group. So he wouldn't let me play football. So I played soccer for a year. And then the very next year, I started playing basketball. And I, I loved basketball. I was always, you know, very tall for my age, of course. And for me, I, I wanted to be Horace Grant before I ever wanted to be Richard <laughs> Dent or Trace Armstrong or something like that. But I was always a Bears fan, too. But then it got to a point where about my, my sophomore year in high school, I was the same height then that I am now, basically. And I stopped growing <laughs> vertically and started to expand horizontally. And, you know, the, the muscle tone started to pick up. Sure. I was a far more dense guy after, you know, especially <laughs> once I started lifting weights the following year. And so there was a lot of gains that I made. And I was always really young for my class, too. So I really didn't even lift weights that much until my senior year in high school. And so it was a, there was a big growth for me physically, mentally, emotionally towards the end of my time in high school. And when I started getting recruited, I didn't play varsity early or anything like that in football. So I always loved hoops and I was going to be a basketball player, but there weren't a lot of, you know, six, three centers in, in the <laughs> NBA or even in college basketball. So once, once football really started to pick up and I recognized I had a lot of skills for that sport, then you know, that's where my love really came into probably midway through high school, kind of, you know, sophomore, junior year, like, oh, I'm, I'm better at football than basketball. OK, gotcha. all right. All right. We'll do that. <laughs> and at what point did you know what schools were involved with you and, and when did Iowa get start to get involved with you? And from there, I mean, you got recruited by a legend in <laughs> in, in Hayden Fry. What was that like, him coming to your house and sitting in your living room and, and trying to convince you to come to Iowa City? <laughs> um, it's it's fun for me now in getting to cover recruiting with the, the networks that I deal with because it's, you know, it's, we're basically a couple of decades removed from me going through the process in like the mm-hmm. mid to late 90s. And it's changed so much. Just yeah. things are so exponentially different with the, the level of coverage it gets now. But there there were websites back then. And it, even more than websites, there were phone lines. Like Tom Lemming had a phone Tom line. Lemming, yeah. Like, yeah, you call <laughs> up and get the, the Tom Lemming phone number and you dial it up and figure out, oh, well, what's Tom Lemming saying about me as a recruit? Who, who's hot and heavy on my trail or whatever? But getting all this mail, and for me as a guy who was, you know, I, I, got, I got some offers 
you know, in the midst of my junior year, it was the first year I played varsity. I played both ways, offensive and defensive line. Played more offensive line at Bullenburg High School my junior year, actually, than the defensive line. And, you know, me and my, my old coaches would still laugh about it to this point. I didn't even start on the varsity on defensive line until my senior year. Then we <laughs> go on and play in the NFL as a defensive lineman, but there was a number of reasons for that. But um, as, as recruiting started to pick up, especially going into my senior years, I started to do a bit of like the camp circuit just in the Chicago area and Midwest going to doing a few camps. And like I mentioned, I'm just starting to lift weights at that point. So I'm really coming into my own physical. And I was 16 years old my senior year in high school. So I'm oh, really wow. just, that was when I first started to really ascend. I mean, you know, I was always an above average athlete for my size, big guy and everything else. But it really started to go to another level for me during my senior season when I really started lifting weights more heavily and, and got into it at that point. So the recruiting mail really came in hot and heavy going into my senior year throughout my senior season. So I was a guy who I wasn't one of these guys who declared early. I wasn't one of these guys who got all my visits out of the way during my junior year, before my senior year, there was so much more information that came in during my senior season. So we visited uh, Michigan, Michigan state, uh, Toledo, Iowa. There were scholarship offers that came from Nebraska and Kansas State, and you know, was, you know, there was a there was a lot of offers that ended up kind of rolling in as we as we allowed the process to play out. Made my parents a little bit longer. When it came down to it, my final three were Iowa, Michigan, and Michigan State. And you know, I you know, Chicago is more of a pro sports town, so between Northwestern and Illinois. Like I guess I didn't have the grades for Northwestern anyway, but they were fortunate enough. They were, they were they were nice enough to show some interest, but I wouldn't have gotten in there academically. Illinois was going through a coaching change from, I believe it was Lou Tepper to Ron Turner. Right. And I, I just, I didn't have that fanaticism for Illinois football anyway. I wanted to get a few hours away from home. And so Iowa, Michigan, and Michigan State is what it came down to. Um, Hayden Fry and really the final two were really Iowa and Michigan State. I was looking for, and I realized this is going through the process, kind of like when you, if you start searching for a home and you know you you're not sure exactly what you want to live in or what type of home really suits where you're at in that point in your life. But then as you look at it, you're like, oh, okay, this fits. And this is what I enjoy, and I like the open floor plan, and I like two stories or whatever. <laughs> and so that played out for me on the recruiting trail of just talking to different coaches, seeing different schools, getting different information in the mail. It's like, you know what? I love the fact that Nebraska's won back-to-back -back national championships. That's, that's great. That's cool. That's, a, you know, Tom Osborne calling me on the phone and offering a scholarship. The only time, or certainly the first time, where I got super excited because I wasn't a college sports fan, certainly not a college football fan, but I knew the name Tom Osborne. I knew about Nebraska's sure. program. He calls, talks about the weather for a little bit. I'm just about to fall asleep on the phone. Next thing I know, he's offered me a scholarship. We get off the phone. I run upstairs excited <laughs> in my mind. Like, Mom, Tom Osborne just called. She gives me this blank stare. <laughs> okay. Who is Tom Osborne? He's Nebraska's coach. He just offered a scholarship. Okay. Put it in the pile with the other scholarship offer. Like, she wasn't nearly as excited about it as I was, <laughs> but it was a big deal. But when it came down to Iowa, Michigan, Michigan State, you know, you had, and especially the final two were Iowa and Michigan State, where Nick Saban's at Michigan State at that point, Hayden Fry's at Iowa at that point. You know, both gentlemen come out to a basketball practice, both come by the house and took visits to both schools, like I mentioned. And a couple of things, you know, the, the similarities in the programs were that I, I recognized while I was kind of evaluating different schools, I, I preferred more. You know, like I, I, 
ended up deciding I didn't want to go to Toledo. I didn't want to go to other Mac schools that have offered. I wanted something bigger than the Mac since the opportunity was there. You know, we thought, should we try to be the big fish in the small pond kind of deal? And so, you know what, in the end, that didn't appeal to me as much. But to go to a major program, but not necessarily one like a Nebraska, like a Michigan that's right there, an Ohio State, like in the national championship discussion every single year, but perhaps one with a tradition that's trying to ascend, it's trying to get that, that next level. And that's where Iowa and Michigan State were really similar, both coaching staffs and coaches who were recruiting me, like Brett Bielema was the coach who recruited me from Iowa. I was a part of his first recruiting class that he brought in as a full-time coach. And there, there was a kinship that Brett and I really still have to this day, but that developed there in recruiting. And the two things, one, just from a personality standpoint, I certainly preferred Coach Fry's personality to Nick Saban's <laughs> personality, and then Michigan State played on turf, and I'd already started to have some kind of rickety knees just through high school basketball and football. I knew there were some issues that were already there. So, you know what, Michigan State was playing on AstroTurf at Spartan Stadium at that time, and yeah. Kenny's on grass, so let, let's go. Let's make it happen. And Iowa City really just felt like home, and, and regardless of like I reference, you know, the, the, the winning less games during my time there. It's still, to this day, every time I go back, it feels like home. And there's not a thing I question about the decision to go and play at Iowa. Despite, like, my freshman year, Michigan and Nebraska share the national championship. My freshman <laughs> is like, oh, I could have been with either one of those teams. But, no, it was, it was going, trying to build something at Iowa. And, the, you know, the, the fact that we went through the coaching change and everything else, none of that changes my thought on how perfect it was that Iowa was the right choice for me at that time. So you were 16 as a senior, and you played as a true freshman. How old were you when you started college? So I was a 17-year-old true freshman playing major college wow. football with all these guys with with beards and you know <laughs> chest hair and gray hair on their heads. Like, wow, man, what did I get myself into? I thought this was college. I didn't know this was going to be like walking into a professional locker room with all these grown men in here. But that's that's really what it felt like. It was. I, I tell people all the time, the jump from high school football to major college football is far bigger than the jump from major college football to the NFL, especially the physical mm. jump that's there. Like Playing high school football, it's a bunch of kids who don't have any business playing a collision sport who are out there trying to compete, especially on the line of scrimmage. You know, it's, it's, just, it's comical at times when you see the physical mismatch that's there, and certainly I, I had a physical advantage over a lot of the guys. I played against in high school. In college, you certainly, there's, you know, when you're a certain level of, of athlete and what have you, there's going to be a physical advantage that's there over the opponent at times. But it's far, it's a far more narrow margin. The advantage you'll have over a lot of the opponents is a smaller margin. And there's less of these, you know, types of people on the field who probably shouldn't be there, who don't belong <laughs> on the right. field playing a collision sport. Once you get to the NFL, then yeah, there's still there's going to be a difference. There's they're just there's Martians on the field in the NFL. <laughs> so there's kind of a you know a handful of guys for the most part on each roster that are just like space aliens physically that are just different than everyone else. But for the most part, all the guys in the NFL from a physical stature and ability standpoint are fairly similar at their position across the board. But the, the jump from high school to college is ginormous by the comparison from the jump to you know from college to the NFL. Mm-hmm. I want to get to the go th- through the coaching change in a second, but I just realized you played for under two really important men that not just Hayden Fry and Kirk Ferentz. I think that's the thing that people, you know, go to because those are the faces of the program. But Bobby Elliott mm-hmm. and Norm Parker, 
I think two of, you know, my years of being around here, my first season was 97. Two of the more beloved assistant coaches that have ever come through here. And you got a chance to play for both of those guys. Did, uh, what type of impact did each of those guys have on you? It's, um, that I, I went to, went to Bobby Elliott's funeral, uh, after he passed and that whole time just leading into him passing just brought back so many memories of the circumstances surrounding not only my recruitment to Iowa, but my time there and, and how that whole time in my life as a teenager went down, you know, like in, in recruiting, the, the negative recruiting that was going on. Once folks recognized that Iowa and Michigan State were were amongst the leaders and probably the two leaders for me coming down the wire there, the negative recruiting against Michigan State was, well, you don't want to go there. You're going to go through a coaching transition. Nick, Nick Saban's going to go back to the NFL. You know, he's been at the NFL level. He wants to go back there. There's no point in you going to be a Spartan because you're going to have a different coach by the end of your career. At Iowa, Similar argument, but different reason. Hayden Fry, <laughs> oh, the guy's, you know, he's like 95 years old. You don't want to go to Iowa. He's going to retire soon. You know, you don't want to go there and go through some coaching change. So similar argument, just for different reasons, that you're going to have a coaching change at either school. Of course, neither coach was there during my, my entire college career. Right. The four years I was in the Big Ten, Nick Saban went on to LSU. Hayden Fry, of course, after two years retired. But one of the things that sold me on Iowa was Brett Bielema and the Iowa staff, when I brought that up, they they really, they attacked it head on and saying, you know what, Brett basically said, Hayden may not be your coach. I think he will be. I don't think he's going anywhere anytime soon. But if Hayden's not your coach, when you come on your visit, I'm going to introduce you to Bobby Elliott. And believe me, you're going to fall in love with this guy. And that is precisely what happened. When I took my visit to Iowa City, I go there, I meet Coach E., He's a part of the tour, take me around campus, we're sitting down, we're breaking some bread, we're just having a good time. And his personality, his demeanor, the way he broke the game down, the way he described just what life would be like on campus. And, you know, he's just dripping Hawkeye through and through, just kind of seeping out of his pores. And the way he expressed his love for the university, for his football program, just sold me on this guy with the scheme he's looking to put me in defensively. He had this, you know, this three, four scheme, this odd front and all the shifting and stemming around and, you know, the kind of undersized approach to the D line. It just, it hooked me. And I said, if this guy is the next coach of Iowa football, if Hayden Fry is leaving and Bobby Elliott's going to be the guy taking over, I can do that. You know, so I hope Hayden Fry is going to stay, but if he doesn't, I feel comfortable with what's in place. And that was, it was a, Michigan State didn't take that same approach. So that would just be something I suppose I'd add to the list of Advantage Iowa as it related specifically to me and my recruiting story. From there, two years, you know, we've certainly chronicled publicly quite, quite often just what it, what it was like. And not only, you know, Hayden's retirement, but Coach E, everything he went through at that point physically, the first bout with a rare form of cancer, visiting right. him in the hospital and everything that, that was associated with that enjoying their entire family and, you know, being so happy that he, he came through it healthy initially and again, and uh, just so many memories of that came pouring back here in recent years before, before attending his funeral. And it was, it was such a, such a celebration of life that was there from all the different luminaries who were, who were in the room and even the ones who weren't luminaries, just folks who had been touched by him and, and the way he affected lives in, in some way. And Norm Parker, Different personality, far more grizzled, you know, far more gruff kind of guy on the exterior, but 
certainly didn't carry himself that way at all times. You know, you, there's there's a certain look about Coach Parker and a certain, you know, vibe that he gave off that had that really old school football sensibility to it. But that that wasn't really him inside and out. There was just a bit of that when you, you know, pay specifically attention to the football side. But so funny, came in completely different scheme. And that was, that was a very <laughs> difficult thing. But I would say it helped me in a number of ways throughout my football career, going from you know, stemming around and we're hitting gaps and we're penetrating playmaking in the backfield on defensive front in Bobby Elliott's scheme, Norm Parker comes in, we're two gapping, we're heavy five. I had to gain a bunch of weight. I'm wrestling with offensive tackles in a way that I've never done before, but <laughs> the steps associated with it, your footwork, your hand usage, what you have to do as, as an undersized guy to try and get away with two gapping these mammoth offensive linemen in the big 10 within Norm's scheme it, it made a big difference. And Norm and, and Phil Parker, you know, have adjusted the scheme o- over the years, you know, after Norm's initial years with us at Iowa and in the Big Ten. But it, it helped me grow so much as a football player, as an athlete, as a technician, the way that I can, that I was able to teach the game as a coach that led me to success, the way that I can explain the game now as a football analyst on television and radio, breaking the game down, being in multiple schemes, being around so many great teachers of the game, helped me so much in, in a number of different ways in, in my profession, in my variety of professions that I've had since then. Going back, you touched on a little bit, but just that period of transition, um, you know, learning that Coach Fry was sick, um, then who's going to be the next coach, where do I fit in with mm-hmm. the new coach, Take me through that all. Take us through that a little bit. You know, your first time, I guess, learning about Coach Fry and then first time Coach Ferentz shows up and, and his message and, and kind of what that transition was like. At the end of Hayden's time in leading the program, that, that very last year, things, and it's one of those things that's easier to recognize in retrospect than it was at the time, but, you know, the, the program, things gotten a little bit more loose where Hayden wasn't and for a number of reasons between age and his health you know the, the struggles he was having health and going through chemotherapy at that point found out years later everything he was going through that same season that Bobby Elliott was going through it so things were looser in in that year what was my sophomore season uh, after that that 1998 year and when Hayden retired and there were there were a number of us who were you know returning starters who had started that previous season who were going to be back the following year who uh, the athletic director at the time, Bob Bowlesby, mm-hmm. called a meeting with a number of us and brought us in the room. Like uh, Matt Bone was there. I believe Aaron Campman was there. A number of other guys who were still going to be with the program the following year. And one of the things, and I really respected the fact that he did that. Now, you know, maybe it was just lip service. just trying to make some some young guys on the team, you know, feel, feel good about their situation, that they had a voice in what was going to happen. But whatever the case may be, he probably didn't want you guys transferring. Well, you know what? And, and especially today <laughs> with all the things going with the transfer portal, we've been talking about that a lot on, on the morning show on Sirius XM with everything sure. that happens with the portal. So today that certainly would have been a huge deal. At the time back then, we certainly had, as we transitioned from Hayden to Kirk, we had guys who transferred. We had guys where as Kirk took over who you know, who left school or guys who just didn't fit in with the new system and decided they wanted to do something else or just guys who stayed with the team but had a different role because schematically we were different on both sides of the ball and and different guys were able to ascend like LeVar Woods, you know, became a starter the very first year. Kirk was here. The scheme suited him better. And, you know, mm-hmm. quite frankly, the guy who was starting over LeVar just wasn't as good of a football player as it anyway. But, 
you know, a lot of these things end up adjusting the, the lineup and, and how people are fitting into it. But so that, that sit down with Bowles, but you think about it, you know, I'm, I'm whatever I was at that point, 18 years old, got the athletic director of the university asking me and my teammates. So what's wrong with the Iowa football program? What do we need in the next coach? Where can things improve? How can they get better? You got teenagers you know, talking with, you know, this grown man and trying to help figure out what's next. And, you know, he still, he went out and did his thing. He hired the guy he thought made sense and it ended up being Kirk. We, of course, as you know, thought it was <laughs> going to be Bob Stoops. That right. was the name that was floating around. That was the name we were all excited about as players because it was a name we knew and we knew there were definitive ties there. And then we heard the name Kirk Ferris. So we're like, huh, who? <laughs> and then, you know, we kind of look into it. Oh, okay, he's got Hawkeye ties. And like I said, I wasn't a college football fan growing up, so I certainly didn't know who the offensive line coach was back in the 80s right, for football. <laughs> and I remember the – I'm sure that the story's been, been heard before with Kirk's very first meeting where he comes in, he addresses us for a few moments, gets emotional very early, and that has to leave the room, gather himself, come back in, and it was not, it was not the best – first impression on us because we're you know we're, we're, we're used to hating fry hating comes up in front of the team he's cracking jokes he's got this, <laughs> this domineer it's, it's it's an it's an odd blend for hating because he's got the the sort of domineering end of things where you know he's controlling the room but he does it in such a suave manner and he's got that that high porch picnic deal to him where he right. he'll turn a phrase and he'll kind of let you know where you stand with certain things in a, in a jovial manner that, you know, if he wants to kind of take someone down a peg, he can do it without making them feel too bad about themselves. He just had such a way with words and he was this orator and he was this psychologist. And you know, that wasn't Kirk in that first meeting. And that's not necessarily Kirk since then. It's two very different men who are so great at the craft of molding people, molding men, molding young men, of, of shaping lives, of leading the football program, but two very different ways of skinning that same cat and to, to be under Kirk for the couple of years that was there, you know, initially very rocky. I think back to my junior year in Kirk's first season where he rarely, if ever yelled at us. I, I, the first time I remember Kirk ever legitimately yelling at us after a game. And, you know, we lost a bunch of games his first year, losing some games in his second year. First time he yelled at us was after we lost a game at Lincoln against Nebraska. And when he, he came in the locker room afterwards, he kicked something on the wall. It was like this sort of, sort of wooden plank at the bottom of some steel post. That explodes everywhere because it was a game where we were in it against Nebraska on the road in Lincoln. They were, of course, a great team that season. We weren't expected to do much. We held up well on the line of scrimmage. We were really young in other spots and you know, just couldn't score some points, couldn't make the plays at the end on defense to stop them and this and that. And he was furious when we got in the locker room afterwards. So, you know what? All right. Maybe something's turning the corner because Coach is now upset when we're not performing up to what is apparently his ascending expectations of us. And that one stands out to me as the point where Kirk started to realize that, okay, you know, we're, we're starting to get things down the path that we need to. And then at the end of that season, we, you know, win a few games finally and break what for a bit was the longest losing streak in the country. And then, you know, that leads to the following year after they've let go of, I've gone, I'm gone, my eligibility's up. They cut some other dead weight loose. And then <laughs> the, the run of bowl victories begins. And it's fun to look back at that. And I, you know, I, I appreciate and I credit Kirk and you know, a lot of the other folks back there still at this point, um, just for making note of what was there his first couple of years, building blocks and, you know, quotes like that that are 
in place for, for what we try to do in helping the, the program work through some things in his first couple of years before things really started to roll. You could see that though, or is it more in retrospect that, cause I mean, I, I covered the, I remember that game at Lincoln. I, I covered that game. I remember 99. I remember LeVar against Northern Illinois saving the day. Yeah, That's right. the only win of the season. But <laughs> in 2000, I mean, you guys beat Michigan state, a pretty good Michigan state team. And then mm-hmm. I think Northwestern was ranked when you beat them. You right. can kind of see things coming together. As a player, do you see that? Do you see that things are starting to come together and you're going in the right direction? By the time we got to to that season, there was such a blend on the roster of, you know, older guys like myself and LeVar. Uh, A.J. Blazek was, was the center on that team. Now, he was a junior college transfer, so he never played for Hayden. But right. there were guys who'd been through the ringer as things were starting to sort of be formed and, and molded a bit in Kirk's first couple of seasons. By the end, though, yeah, you, you referenced the uh, the Michigan State game. We won at home. And, you know, we're storming the field because the defeated <laughs> Michigan State and Kinnick is a, a muck with just fans everywhere because finally the losing streak is over. Uh, later in the season, you referenced the, the Northwestern game. I believe they were somewhere in the top 15. It was a game that it was, it was senior day for me and, you know, a bunch of other guys whose career was ending at Kinnick. We upset a top 15 Northwestern squad. We beat Penn State. So we knocked Northwestern out of the Rose Bowl. And I believe it was either the week before or the very next week after we went on the road and beat Penn State in double overtime. And That's that right. Was I was at that game, too. I remember I that. I think Sopa was going to, like, tie the all-time wins record or, or, you know, take over the all-time wins lead or something like that. And they were trying to you know, secure a better bowl game. So we things think we could definitely tell. And the very last game of the regular season, we lost at Minnesota in a game. We were up by like several touchdowns. Mm-hmm. And then Ron yeah. Johnson went off in the fourth quarter yep. <laughs> on our young secondary. And so, yeah. you know, had a bunch of touchdown catches. Or we, we would have won like four out of our last five games, I think, or something like that that year. So we could tell. It's a similar vibe to where like Nebraska right now, this coming season, there's so much momentum for Nebraska because right. they won four out of their last six games. Young, exciting quarterback and, you know, a team that folks feel like, all right, the way they finished, they're going to ascend next year. And so even though, you know, some of us older guys were on the way out at Iowa, our eligibility was up, we could definitely tell. Like the guys I came in with where we were talking about, like myself and Liddell Betts and Kyle McCann and Khalil Hill and and so on and so forth, Mm -hmm. we came all in in the same recruiting class and we're talking about our freshman year, all the, the Big Ten championships we wanted to win and whatnot. It's weird that that confidence was never sapped at, at any point during our career. It was just, there was just so many times where we didn't play well, we didn't win games, or we were smaller and younger and whatever else, or had walk-ons who were suddenly moved from tight end to offensive tackle, and they weren't quite ready <laughs> for prime time yet. And But I'd say there were so many of us who still took the field every week, feel like, all right, this is a week, we're going to win. Like, yeah, things didn't go well last week, we lost by 20 points last week, but you know what? Yeah, we got it. We just kept putting the work in over and over again and feeling like there was enough to probably get it done. So I think, you know, the retrospect part of it was, no, there certainly in the midst of that wasn't enough to get it done at any real high level. But then by the time we were heading out and we're competing against great teams, defeating great teams in my senior year, that was where, I mean, I myself, uh, like I mentioned, A.J. Blazek, a couple of us, stood up in that locker room um, after the, I believe it was after the Penn State game, our second to last road game of the season, where we knew we weren't going to be bowl eligible mathematically, but just making the point 
that oh you know what it was after it was after the Minnesota loss that's what it was it was after the Minnesota loss and just standing up on top of the benches in the locker room saying you know what you know we they made these Floyd Bowl t-shirts say you know what we didn't win the Floyd Bowl but you guys are going to go to a real bowl next year you're going to win that bowl game we can tell you know I can tell this is something that's starting to grow you know things are headed in the right direction and every all the work we've put in and you know blah 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 I just kind of gave sure. it the rah rah but it was a it was a real thing it was a real feeling in that moment of recognizing that what we had been building towards we weren't going to necessarily reap the benefits of it and even Kirk kind of got on board Kirk's like you know what I'm gonna make sure all you guys get bowl gifts or get watches or something when we make a bowl <laughs> game next season because yes this is something special we got brewing here so everybody was on board we could tell something was about to happen and get rolling. After that 2000 season, they got into 2001, and it was a really veteran team that year that had a, a nice mix and blend of some of the Florida guys that Bielema was bringing yeah. in. It was like, all right, here's, here's Freddie Barr, and here's Benny Sapp, and here's some, you know, some playmakers that are being added into the mix with everyone. And it was, uh, it, it was cool to watch it happen from afar. In retrospect, if there's anything I changed about my time, but I was like, huh. I guess if I would have redshirted, then right. at least I'd have gotten to win that Alamo Bowl or whatever. <laughs> but, you know. <laughs> so did you ever get an Alamo Bowl gift? Uh, I got a watch. I didn't oh. get the full gift package, but I did get an Alamo Bowl watch. And, they met, and I couldn't tell you where it is at this point. But, yes, they did at some point <laughs> make sure that we got some kind of a recognition with a watch from that bowl game. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. So you see your career, your high school or college career is wrapped up and uh, you turn your attention to the NFL. Um I'm sure you were one of the first guys that Coach Doyle kind of get got prepped for for the NFL. Uh, yeah. what, was, what was that process? And he's done it so long now that he's put <laughs> so many guys in the NFL. What was that like for you? How was your body holding up at that point? And you know, talk a little bit about that transition from college to pro. And and I think you signed as a free agent with Detroit and how things went there. So for me, I because I played as a true freshman. I wasn't done with my degree yet. So I went through the the thought process of like, well, do I want to go out to like Arizona or have my agent send me down to Florida and go to some other training facility or whatever as I'm prepping for the, you know, for the combine and I played in what well, then it's it doesn't exist anymore. The blue gray all star game. We didn't right. make a bowl game. So it was this all star game that used to be on Christmas Day. So I played in that and you know thinking about uh, whether or not I should go somewhere else. And yeah, I mean, you know, after being with, uh, with Chris, with Coach Doyle for, for a couple of years at that point, it was you know, fairly obvious that he was great at what he does. And the fact that I was still actually still took classes during that semester in the spring anyway. So I wasn't one of these guys mm -hmm. who, you know, I'm going to, I've already finished my degree. I'm not going to enroll in classes anymore and focus on this or that. So I stayed on campus. I worked with Coach Doyle and you know, took a, a trip or two here and there, just do a little, little something else but overall I was mainly in Iowa City and just trying to give myself the best opportunity I could to make the league and a lot of the the physical ailments that were there between the knees and the back you know when the combine is different now than than it was back then like in 2001 going to the combine there were no limits on how many teams could interview you how many individuals from those teams could interview you on mm -hmm. a given night as you're going through those days in Indianapolis and so while you're there, you're up all night doing interviews, you wake up the following morning. I remember, for whatever reason, it was myself and, uh, and Justin Smith was my roommate as another defensive lineman was there, ended up being a first-round pick with the, with the Bengals. And um, we, we both woke up in the middle of the night and used the bathroom. I went and used the bathroom, and 
you know, to figure, okay, I got a few hours till they officially come wake us up to take the drug test. So I'm thinking, okay, I'm really well hydrated. It'll be fine. Then they get us up. We go to take the drug test and I just, I've got nothing. You know, my tank is on E. So I got to go sit in the room by myself with a couple of guys just staring at me, just waiting. They got the temperature turned down really low because supposedly that's going to like help right. your bladder produce more water or whatever, which didn't make any sense to me. So I missed a certain segment of the morning session where everyone else goes and does the bench press test together. I miss all that. End up, uh, because of all the extra MRIs and x-rays, we're now teams around the NFL share all the different scans and tests together across the board in a different manner now than they did then. So there were things where I'm like repeating MRIs on my shoulder and on my knees and on my back and getting x-rays over and over again from different teams requesting different spots to be x-rayed and scanned over and over again. So I missed the media session. So all these things that I ended up having to do like later on, my combine experience was very different than what a lot of other guys are because the numbers I put up were okay. I, I, don't, I was never a guy with great straight line speed. Then I also tweaked my hamstring before, so I didn't run the 40 that well. Other than that, my test numbers came out, you know, pretty good at the combine, at least, you know, happy enough with them. But I did a lot of it by myself. Like by the time we got to on-field drills, that was really the first time I did anything with the other prospects, aside from when I'm sitting in the hospital for a few hours getting scanned and tested. It was like me and Chris Winkie who looked like he was approximately <laughs> 55 years old in college. And he's, he's got, he's like balding. He's got the, the kind of Captain Picard thing going with the horseshoe ball in his head when he takes his baseball cap off. So it's me and Chris Winkie just getting scanned and, and tested and prodded over and over again. And combine was what it was. Come back to the pro day, go through that. And going into draft weekend, you know, I go back to Bolingbrook, I hang out at my parents' house. We didn't do like a big draft party or anything. But just in the recruiting information you get from different agents, and they're trying to, you know, give you a sense for what their agency is like, what information they're hearing about you and why they're pursuing you. I actually went into draft weekend thinking I was going to be a mid-round pick. And mm -hmm. back then, the draft was a two-day process. You have rounds one through three on Saturday and then rounds four through seven on Sunday. So, And I distinctly remember, I was actually just telling this story uh, during the draft weekend a couple of weeks back on my, my morning show that – there was one of the teams from the NFC who calls me just a couple of days before the draft that they, they spend the whole week leading into it, basically. And cell phones are still somewhat in their infancy at this point. I certainly hadn't had a cell phone for very long mm -hmm. when this was going on. But they call, and they're just trying to confirm contact info, like where where's your location going to be? What's your phone number? Is this where we're going to be able to reach you at? And one particular person from a team calls me up a couple of days before the draft begins and I just posed the question. I've been hearing from different folks, and my agent's telling me, you know, he's hearing mid-round pick and, you know, feel like things are going well with the teams that you've know, been meeting with and having private workouts with and everything. So, well, so where are you thinking you may, you know, where should I, like, be at my most ready? So, well, you know, it's, it may be at the end of day one, but it's probably going to be early day two. Oh, probably early day two. All right, great. You know, I'm excited. <laughs> draft weekend, day one goes by. And, you know, and actually a couple of teams did, did call day one but just like hey just you know making sure we're still good we're not looking to pick you yet but just kind of checking in are you hearing anything from anyone else so that's part of the, the machination right. of how things play out draft weekend a little bit with folks just kind of poking around getting info and then so day two comes i'm thinking all right you know fourth round maybe fifth round those rounds start to float by i'm getting less calls through those rounds than i was during the third round so we finally get to like the sixth round phone starts ringing again and it's more of a, all right, be ready, hang on, we might do this, we might do that. So the stress of draft weekend 
you know, we watched it where the first round picks are on TV and seeing how that plays out with the guys who go really early. The stress of draft weekend is so much more intense for the folks who don't go early because you're just yeah. sitting there the entire weekend waiting and hoping and wanting and over and over again. And in the end, just with all, you know, in, in retrospect, the, the knock on me was true that not only was I a tweener by position, is he a tackle, is he an end, but also I was just, I'm a very injury prone guy, or at least I was. You know, my knees were already in bad shape. My back was already in bad shape coming out of college. So those are things that eventually turned out to be true. Cause I had surgeries on both knees, surgery on my back, surgery on my shoulder, surgery on my foot, surgery on my hand. So all these things that were concerns or red flags on me at that point ended up playing out throughout my professional career as well. Um, so, I mean, you know, bounced around between the Detroit Lions, the Green Bay Packers, the Atlanta Falcons, Pittsburgh Steelers. And what I do, at least I, I suppose appreciate is the word I would use, is my very last NFL camp I was in. I went through the preseason. Like, I'd been with the Falcons the year before. The second half of the 2004 season, I was in Atlanta. And going through camp in 2005 after, you know, several surgeries throughout my pro career up to that point, and going through the preseason in Atlanta in 2005, I got through the preseason healthy, played really well, put some really good film out there, and didn't get picked up by anyone. And at least for that, I said, you know what? I put really good, healthy film out there for the, the very first time. I wasn't either limping through a preseason or missing time in the preseason because of this or that. I got through a healthy preseason, put great film out there. No one picked me up the rest of that year, so I felt like that was at least – a note of my NFL career for the end of it that I felt good about from, you know, just sort of a positive standpoint of, of how things went down at the end before then going on and playing arena football and coaching arena football and doing some of the other things I did in the football world. Right. So you get into the, you know, you go and play arena a little bit and then get into coaching. Did you think at that point coaching was where you were going to end up or, you know, whether maybe coaching or management or something like that? Was that where you thought your career path was taking you? No, I thought I would make tens of millions of dollars in the NFL and retire to a yes. <laughs> but since that didn't play out, Rob, then I just sort of adjusted on the fly as, as things progressed. And so at the, at the end there, after, um, you know, playing and coaching and then becoming an executive with the league and some of the things I talked about earlier, it was uh, at, at that point, it was a bit of a feeling out process. And for me, where the NFL has been for decades now, essentially a year round job where, you know, for right. most teams, you're pretty much there in the city and at the facility throughout most of the calendar year, whether it's obviously the regular season and, and the off-season program, you got your mini camps and OTAs and off-season conditioning and things going on like that. And arena football was very different where it's essentially just half the year. And this is back in the, the middle of that first decade of the 2000s before the league went into bankruptcy and came back. So like you can mm -hmm. make real money playing arena football, good money playing arena football, and you got half the year off. So that was lovely. I was living in Nashville and I was recovering from, you know, some knee issues that I'd had previous to that and, and having knee surgery there in Nashville. And that was when I first started getting into broadcasting. And so the, the arena season was during the spring and summer. So essentially my off season at that point was during the outdoor, the, the high school and college and NFL mm -hmm. football season. So that was when I first started getting into doing some television and doing some radio calling some high school games, calling some college games in Nashville and going back to Atlanta with some connections I've made there in the media. And it, initially, I was just doing it to sort of enjoy it, pass the time, 
you know, just in a way, I almost just kind of fell into it because someone asked me to come in and audition for something. And then after kind of messing around with it for a couple of years in Nashville and recognizing my body isn't getting any better at 28 years old, so maybe I should just hang them up. And then I, the Big Ten Network was starting up at that same time. Mm. And so I actually spent the initial couple of years of my time at the Big Ten Network where I was still coaching arena football with a team in Huntsville, Alabama, called the initiatives of the Tennessee Valley Vipers, won a championship my first year coaching them, and then the um, the Alabama Vipers, as the Arena League came out of bankruptcy and what was Arena 2 kind of combined with Arena 1, and the Alabama Vipers were in the league, so I was still coaching at that point. And also then during the fall at the Big Ten Network, I was calling games and doing studio shows and really getting my media career ramped up. So it all, you know, I suppose... I don't even necessarily like the word fortuitous with it because it's one of those things where, like I was referencing earlier, you, you pursue opportunities and you look for things and you, you know, you try new things out and sometimes it works, sometimes it fits, sometimes it doesn't. And mm -hmm. for me, television, radio, being a, you know, you asked if I, if I thought I may be interested in coaching, it crossed my mind, but more than anything, being a teacher is what's always crossed my mind from a really young age. And I feel like essentially that's what football coaches are. That's what sports commentators are to a large extent, especially sports analysts. Like for me, when I'm in the game, right. I'm in the booth, calling a football game, I'm teaching people about the sport that I happen to have a lot of knowledge and experience about. And so for me, the, the teacher aspect of it is how I try to attack most things that I'm involved in. And especially as a, as a broadcaster, that's what that that feeling of, of providing information to people that maybe they don't have or a level of understanding that maybe they don't have. That's something that that appealed to me and stuck out to me, especially once folks in the industry who had been in it a lot longer than I had in that early portion of my career were saying, you know what? You you got a bit of a knack for this. This is maybe something you should look to stick with. So I did. And at this point, you like we talked about earlier, you've got, you know, a lot of different oars in the water here and different avenues. Would you like to get it down to just doing one thing or, or are you still feeling your way through this thing and, and not sure where you're going to go? That's, that's a good question. Um, I don't, I don't necessarily mind having, you know, multiple employers, but the, the aspect of, of, you know, sort of from one year to the next, like it's been great that I've been such a blessing to be able to have, you know, a level of success and security and whatever else, just kind of doing as, as much as I do. But then at the same time, sure, would, would there be comfort in having, you know, one employer say, hey, we we really want to marry you with this big bag of cash that we're going to you know, guarantee you for the next <laughs> sure. few years. Sure. But then once you go that route, the, the, I suppose, negative end of it is also that you are marrying yourself to that employer and your schedule is more so in their hands, whereas... For me, like right now, I'm literally tomorrow, I'm going to fly my wife and my one-year-old. We're going to go to London for eight days. Nice. It's football offseason, so for me, I can set my schedule in that manner where I can take some time off from my XM show. They can bring in some guest hosts to fill that time. I can miss out on some of the stuff I do with the radio here in Chicago and some of the Sunday night TV I do here. During this last football season, I wanted to get, you know, we, we had some, you know, some health issues going in my family last year. I wanted to get my, I, I took my mom, my wife, my my niece and her new husband. Obviously, our, our son came with us. It took like seven of us to Hawaii in December. 
that was still during the NFL season. So if I was in, if my role was a bit different with Fox 32, if I was like a full-time staff employee, I waited until after my college schedule was up, but then the NFL Bears were doing great. NFL regular season's coming down the wire and playoffs are going to start. I just took a week and went to Hawaii because I'm allowed to do that with the way my schedule is set up. So I think there's, you know, there's some pros and cons to both ends of it. I've certainly learned to to enjoy the aspects of having control over my schedule in the manner that I do right now that would be a bit different if there was, you know, sort of one more, you know, one employer who had more control over how my schedule would work out because of some level of exclusivity they had with my availability. Sure. So how long have you been married? One child, correct? Did you right. meet your, did you meet your wife at Iowa? Met my wife at Iowa. My wife right. is a, a much better athlete than me. My, my wife, uh, <laughs> she's she's from the East Coast, from New England. She played pretty much everything growing up, golf, and, uh, field hockey, softball, basketball, and really could have, could have gone and competed in college in any of them. Her biggest scholarship offer came as a field hockey player at the University of Iowa. So she was a goalie, and we were at Iowa at the same time. She ended up, uh, she had a really cool story where she, you know, depending on how far this podcast ends up going, you know, maybe down the line, if you're going to some of the non-rep sports, sure. my wife's college career is a really cool one where she actually sat the bench for the better part of three years behind the current Iowa field hockey coach, Lisa ah, Salucci. Salucci yeah. was a multi-time All-American mm-hmm. who was a year older than my wife, whose maiden name, Kelly Drewley, now Kelly Drewley Heron. Okay. So my wife's senior year was the only year she started. The field hockey program was going through historic level struggles that they had never gone through under Beth Beglin before. Right. My wife's kind of sophomore and junior year, you know, they were always going to Final Fours, winning the Big Ten, this and that. They went through a couple of really lean years. And then my wife's senior season, she and similar thing, you know, some of the other ladies who they came in together and had kind of built the program back up in her senior year, she went started was a first-team All-American, the female athlete of the year at the University of Iowa, led the team to the Final Four, yep. and you know did all those things during, during that, uh, I guess, what was the 99 field hockey season. And they just had this, this magical kind of year where they just dominated so many people and shut everyone down defensively. It was really fun to watch her get to end her season on that note after some frustrating, you know, kind of like quarterback. There's only one goalie that's going to be on the field. So when you're backing up an All-American who's a year older than you and she's one of the greats of all time, then, yeah, you're just going to kind of wait your turn. But when her turn came, she, my wife took full advantage of it and kind of hit every milestone you can hit for one individual season outside a national championship. But everything else, she got it done that year. But, yeah, we, we met at school. We dated the majority of the time in in college and are still there together at this point she actually she worked in the media before i did too she's done a, a number of television and radio gigs in the past um but then my football career made that part a little bit difficult on her because my career was always just kind of from one year to the next we didn't know what team i'd be with or what city we'd live in so really the first time she got to actually sign a contract with a local news affiliate was after i was done playing and i started coaching football in huntsville and she signed a contract a multi-year deal with the cbs affiliate in huntsville and then, you know, she did that for a couple of years, and that at least allowed us to sit still, allowed her to, you know, focus on her career in a more, a more detailed manner than what she could before just doing kind of part-time work at different affiliates and other cities we've been in. So I was, I was glad to see her, you know, kind of play that part out. And then we ended up moving to Chicago when I took – and the weird thing was I was working with the Big Ten Network at that point 
while I was coaching arena football in Huntsville and flying up north every week doing Big Ten games and Big Ten studio shows in Chicago. Then we literally moved to Chicago the very same year. I got an offer from NBC Sports when they took over Versus and, you know, turned it into NBC Sports Network. Mm -hmm. So then I started doing all these events (laughs) for NBC. So I wasn't even with the Big Ten Network anymore when we started living in Chicago. Uh, but she's she's been with me kind of every move along the way, and we've we've been married for uh, not quite twenty years yet, but we're working on I guess what seventeen years wow. now. We've been married, and it's been a, and we dated most of the time in college, and you know we had uh, had some some struggles in in making a baby, but we've got a nineteen month old now, and he's he has been phenomenal, and I'm very proud of him for not trying to uh, trying to ram this door down because it becomes a bit of a I do my serious XM show actually from home here so it becomes a bit of a, a skit during the show if he happens to wake up while I'm on the air and he comes in he tries to get in the room while I'm on the air and he might be banging on the door or <laughs> you might hear him singing on the other side of the door or something so we just turn it into just kind of a comedy skit that's a part of the show now if he ends up doing that at times yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I remember, as I said, I think before we started the podcast, I remember those days when I was the work at home dad and had my kids home with me and did radio interviews and things like that. And yeah, just make it part of the you make it part of the gig <laughs> and people can relate to it because we all go right. through it. And that's right. cool. That's a cool story with your wife as well to tie that into, you know, the Hawkeye uh, history. Um I think that's neat. I, I I did not realize that you were married to Ke- Kelly Drooley. I remember when she played here, and I, I remember how good she was. And that's kind of cool. That's a cool uh, cool connection. Yeah, she's got she's got quite a got quite a phenomenal story to the way her career ended up playing out. So I mean, I you know I, I know that she tends to be in consideration with some of like the, the Hall of Fame ballots are going on and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Hope that uh, that that ends up coming through i'm sure will at some point down the pipe you know female athlete of the year and all those accolades that she got that final season and team going to the final four and whatnot and uh, i think at some point i I would i would imagine i I don't even know for sure she my wife hasn't mentioned it if if it is but the i guess their their own version of the 99ers you know taking the the field hockey program back to prominence in 99 like they did i would imagine they must be preparing some kind of a 20-year anniversary or recognition of the team oh, here 20 years later so yeah i hope hope that works out well because field hockey and football are the same seasons so then it yeah then it turns into because <laughs> I'm, I'm gone like literally half the week during the football season yeah. in the rest with the pac 12 then i come back here and i'm busy all afternoon and evening sunday but i'm sure we can figure something out you know especially since our son's a little bit older now so she's got to get back to iowa city for some kind of celebration then We'll definitely have to figure that out because they, they had a great team that year in our senior season. Yeah, I'm sure they'll do something for that, and you guys will figure out how to make that work. <laughs> yeah, all, right. all right, so I kind of have an idea here to, to finish up the podcast with what I'll call the Hawkeye High Five. It's just kind of five fun questions Iowa-related to, to you know present to um, the subject of the podcast, which this week again, Anthony Heron. Um, so we'll start with uh, when you were in Iowa City, or maybe this is you can still go back there. Things have changed, I'm sure, in the last whatever almost twenty years. But what was or is your favorite place to hang out when you when you're in Iowa City, or when you were going to school in Iowa City? Oh, the the last time I was on campus was. 
during the, the 12 and 0 season a few years ago when they played Maryland. Because the cool thing, when I was at the Big Ten Network, they gave me an Iowa game to call. And I was all right, I can spend like several <laughs> weekends in Iowa City during the sure. football season and go call a game at Kinnick. And how, how awesome is this? I'm in the booth at Kinnick calling my Hawkeyes. But since I don't get to do that anymore and I'm so busy during the season, you know, working, obviously. So I got back when they faced Maryland during the 12 and 0 season. I haven't been back since then, but the campus, every time I go back and the new facility that's up there, obviously with the football team, it's you know, pretty majestic, but there, there are little pockets of campus that always feel a little bit different, but you know, right there in that ped mall kind of area where everything, right. you know, spills into it when you're coming out of restaurants and bars and whatnot, that's somewhere that I don't, I haven't ever been to the pet mall, you know, especially not in an after hours capacity in, in a while now. But Baldi's is a restaurant I used to love going to that's not there anymore. I think actually Nate Katie, I think that's one of the spots that he took over and turned it into a, a different restaurant. But there used to be a it was basically like a, a wrap, like a burrito, a breakfast wrap kind of spot called Baldi's. that was in town that I used to love going to. Love and, that place. You know, and I was always I miss like, that place. Man, it was such a great <laughs> spot. I've given Nate a hard time about that. And yeah, it was Nate and, and they switched from Baldi's to now it's Shorts Burgers. There, yes, exactly. Shorts and, you know, Shorts School and all. But they didn't have to get rid of Baldi's. I wish Baldi's <laughs> was still there because for me, when I think nostalgia, Baldi's is one of the spots that I used to spend so much time going to and, and getting wraps and everything else that was there that I, I loved eating. Because it was it was a good, compact way to consume a lot of food at the same right. time. It was basically right. like a giant burrito, but just not really burrito ingredients that were in it. So Baldi's is what sticks. Because when, when I think nostalgia, I think food through that right. lens. I'm with you. So I, yeah. So I'd say <laughs> Baldi's is the spot that stands out to me. All right. So while you hit two que- the first two questions, the Ped Mall and, and the Baldies, um, the third question would be, um, what was your favorite course at Iowa? You know, course of study prof- or professor? I would say Linton Culture of the Middle Ages was one that once I, because I, I was initially a business major when I was there and then I transitioned over to, to being an English major. And Lytton Culture of the Middle Ages was a class that I'll, I'll still reference that sometimes when I'm, especially if I'm talking to like younger students in different ways, just in trying to figure out what your path is. But probably my favorite class that I had the most fun in was Swahili. You know, I, I didn't want to cool. just take Spanish or French or something that a lot of other folks were taking. So I took Swahili while I was there at Iowa and I had two different teachers in the, in the couple of years that I studied Swahili in Iowa City. And it's one of those things where, because I took French in high school and Swahili in college, and of course, you know, and fluent in English. So when we travel to different places, like London is going to be the first non-English speaking overseas travel that we've done. You know, you go to Hawaii, that's still America. But as far as going mm-hmm. to a foreign country, Hawaii, I mean, uh, uh, London is going to be the first trip that we're taking where we're going somewhere where they speak English. So I, I've always enjoyed going to other countries and, and just testing out little segments, little tidbits of how certain languages piece themselves together. And obviously words and language and verbiage are a big part of my day-to-day existence working in the, the media and talking for a living. But uh, but Swahili is a class I look back on fondly just for you know how much of it I'll still try to implement here. Even if it's just messing around when I'm doing different speaking engagements and I'll start out with a little <laughs> bit of Swahili just to throw folks off for a second. I'm definitely not fluent in it. I don't remember as much as I used to, so I don't do it for very long, but I'll get a couple of sentences into it just to throw them off and then I'll you know start to speak like myself. <laughs> um number four of our high five. Uh who were your roommates when you were at Iowa? 
Um, so in the dorm, when we still used to, we lived in Slater Hall uh, right. back when I was there. And Liddell Betts was my initial roommate because Liddell and I you know, came in the same recruiting class and we were on the very same visit. So we stayed in touch. And before social media was going on and recruits were going to stay in touch, you had to like exchange home numbers or cell numbers, <laughs> right. that type of thing. And Liddell is a bit like me in that manner where he's kind of an old soul. He's not a huge like technological guy. So neither one of us had cell phones until very late in college. Um, but so Liddell and I, we exchanged home numbers. And actually, I committed to Iowa before he did. And at a certain point, you know, once I'm, I'm trying to like build up the coffers of the recruiting class, so I, I called Liddell up and, you know, basically kind of helped close him on coming in and joining us with the Hawkeyes. So we stayed really close over the years since then. So we, we pretty much always lived together in different, in different areas, whether in the dorm or in apartments in the years since then. Then a variety of other teammates like Mikel Brown lived with us at a different mm-hmm. point. David, David Porter yeah. lived with us at a different point also. Um, Khalil Hill lived with us at, at a different point. So we had a number of guys who kind of were in and out of our lives, depending on where Liddell and I were living at. And then our last one, and you're going to get to answer both ends of this, or either or, because you were one of the players that were part of the transition from Fry to Kirk. A, fra- a favorite Kirkism or a favorite Fryism of yours? You can give me both or one or the other. Uh, one of the things that I'll still, when I when I do football camps or for a while when I was coaching, one thing I would take from Hayden that I loved that he would do is he would have you know a player come up and speak at the end of practice. He called give us a cheer. So he'd have somebody come up and, you know, whether you're going to make an impassioned speech or if you're going to tell a joke or whatever you felt kind of suited the mood of the moment, mm-hmm. you would have someone come up and give us a cheer. He'd say his piece, he'd have someone else come up, say their piece, and then you break the team down to end practice. So give us a cheer is one one sort of Haydenism that I've <laughs> used in my time just being on the field and kind of working with, with the different athletes just in getting them, kind of empowering them in the moment to come up and kind of take ownership of where the team was at philosophically in a given moment for Kirk, you know, Kirk is, he's, he's certainly not, like I mentioned, he's not hating with turning the phrase in a different way, but one of the things that I still to this day, I'll laugh about because all coaches have little phrases they use for, you know, things within football activities. One of the funniest mm-hmm. things Kirk ever said was he was yelling at an offensive lineman. We were doing some kind of a, a run period. And, you know, initially in Kirk's time there, a couple of years into it, the old line was still young and small mm-hmm. and figuring things out before guys like Eric Steinbach and Bruce Nelson kind of really rounded into form. Robert Gallery really grew up a bit. So there was one point, I'm not going to say which lineman he was yelling at, because honestly, <laughs> I don't even remember who exactly he was saying it to, but our D-line was always fairly deep. We'd always put guys in the league, and we were, of course, dominating this particular period. And there was a point where Kirk looks at a particular offensive line, he had him go multiple reps in a row, and the D-line just kept whooping this guy over and over again. And Kirk, who wasn't even really working directly with the offensive line at the moment, but just came over because things were going so poorly for the O-line. He strolls behind the guy and just yells, like, right in the back of his head, what are you, a pacifist? Hit somebody. And it just, to this day, will still bring tears to my eyes when I think about Kirk just, just saying, what are you, a pacifist? Hit somebody. 
one, because pacifist is such an underused word. I just love it right. just from a vocabulary standpoint. Love the fact that he used the term pacifist in describing the antithesis <laughs> of what you want one of your linemen to be and using that as his very highbrow insult of what was going on with his own line at one of those moments in practice. So that's one that just pops into my head when you pose the question about something Kirk said <laughs> on the practice field that just made me, I didn't crack up in the moment because it wouldn't have been good form <laughs> to right. laugh at a teammate, but I laugh about it to this. We definitely <laughs> laughed about it that night and to this day. So have a good time with that. But what are you, a pacifist? <laughs> Uh, that's a good story for us to wrap up on, Anthony. Um, I, I appreciate you giving me all this time. I, I would like for you to tell us again, tell the listeners again, your um, XM show, because it's Big Ten, and I think a lot of people will be interested in that that don't know about it, when it's on and where they can find it on the, on the satellite. Yeah, we are on every weekday from 6 to 9 a.m. Central Time. The name of the show is Big Ten This Morning. I host it alongside with Jason Goff, who's also a Chicagoan here, who's been pretty accomplished in the, in the media as well. So we're on Sirius XM Channel 372 on the Big Ten Channel. So we, we, the, we premiered the show in October as the channel launched, and it's been a, a lot of fun to do and pretty successful for us so far, just kind of adding to the Sirius XM portfolio of, of conference networks. Uh, so... You know, things will pick up, obviously, as the football season draws more near, but we've been mm -hmm. covering everything. And Jason and I have a similar, we're basically the same age. We have a very similar personality and sense of humor. So we'll talk plenty of sports. We do a lot of that. We break down the Big Ten, but we get into a number of other things as well that just kind of suit us in a given morning. So it's a, it's a lot of fun we have on that show. And I'm obviously on Twitter and Instagram at Big Ant Heron, so everybody can check out where I'm posting about different things I'm doing there. But like I referenced, I'm going to be off for the next few days because we are leaving on a jet plane. He's going to have a good time with the family. Well, I hope you have a great trip. And I, again, appreciate you doing this for me. And we did it. We got through this. We got on. Yeah. Are they um, all going to be an hour? Is that is that the plan? We, I, I'm not a big podcaster. This is probably, I, that's probably just part of the dinosaur in me, I guess. I don't know. But I feel like I should do more listening of podcasts maybe i'll do it on the flight it's going to be a really long flight so is our most podcasts like an hour long is this kind of the thing yeah i think they vary but i think hours probably pretty standard for these things i really okay. don't listen to them that much either <laughs> the only time i listen to them really is if i'm cutting the grass or maybe if i'm out shoveling snow depending on what the season is if i have my phone or something i'll be like yeah you know there's nothing on a sp particular sports radio station I feel like listening to. So let me throw a, a podcast on. So, um, yeah, I don't listen to them a lot, but I do listen to them occasionally. And when you have time, the good thing about it is it's, they're kind of interest, you know, interest centric. So whatever your interests are, you can find, usually find a podcast and hopefully this will be of interest to Hawkeye fans. I certainly hope it will as well. I was happy to do it, Rob. Thanks for asking. Yeah. Thanks again, Anthony. Have a safe trip over to London and uh, have some fish and chips and ride a trolley oh, or whatever yeah. they do over there. And... <laughs> <laughs> All of the above.